Wearing striped capris, sunglasses, and a kerchief, the young fawn inhaled one of the beautiful orchids found everywhere in the seaside village of Brando, France. Elbows resting on the edge of the table off the rooftop lounge of Hotel Belvedere, it was clear she wasn't French. But she did radiate a quiet graciousness, so compelling you couldn't look away. Only 18, she had been on the Côte d'Azur for a week, testing the next generation of Formula One race cars at the French Grand Prix. Along with her team of six, she had been invited by officials to bring a youthful perspective to the event. So, what the hey? It was an all-expenses-paid trip, right? With the barman Domino, she watched Talk Now, one of the few English shows on French television. Today, the host was interviewing Matthias Crane, a cheeky European millionaire who made a fortune in convenient frozen foods like pizza, mac and cheese, beef bourguignon, succotash, ice cream, whole braising chickens, bagels, and, new for 1977, cryogenics, the science of freezing living things. Before a TV audience, the eccentric entrepreneur explained, Would you rather see a hundred million die, or would you rather freeze a hundred million sick people for 200 years until science could cure them? Domino, said Possum looking at her bracelet, can you turn off the sound, see vous play? After re-energizing with a touch of lip gloss, she said, You know the idea of freezing the sick and then, like, reviving them, like, two centuries later, in a one-way medical time travel trip? Doesn't work for me. The girl had a point, but who was she? And what are we listening to? The girl, of course, is Possum Harding. And if you store your tray table and seat back are in an upright position, the Possum Harding adventures are about to begin. Okay, baby, let me see some ID. Step away from the car, mister. Nobody moves and nobody gets hurt. I'm Possum Harding. Only 18. She has a taste for fast cars and unsolved mysteries. With her team of friends, she travels the Sunshine State, righting wrongs, solving mysteries, and looking for excitement. Welcome to 1977. This is Orlando. You're listening to Possum Harding Adventures with Jupiter Gadsden. The French Grand Prix ended with a finale featuring dancers, flags, cannon fire, and sentimental over 50-year-old French pop singers in seam-busting leather skirts or pants. After the show, a luxury motor coach transported 30 guests, including Possum Harding, to Hotel Belvedere, the official headquarters of the race. Looking around, Possum saw that multi-millionaire Matthias Crane was on the coach too. Odd. She'd seen him on TV only yesterday, and she heard a rumor he was in town for the race. Seeing the beautiful French countryside out the window of the coach reminded Possum of all the places she's been. Places like Casablanca, Monza, Abu Dhabi, Valencia, Barcelona, Mexico City, Berlin, Miami, Le Mans, Bowmanville, Las Vegas, Montreal, Shanghai, and now Brando. Exotic travel explained Possum's interest in riddles, fast cars, mobsters, spies, missing persons, danger, and romance. And yet, it didn't explain everything. Three days after her birth, Possum's mama Ivy O'Day snuck out the back door, 
leaving Possum and her father to fend for themselves. Possum's daddy was Palmer Harding, back then an aspiring 20-year-old Formula One driver. Seeing no options, Palmer did what any parent would. He took Possum on the road and homeschooled her. Instead of nursery rhymes, deviled egg sandwiches, pet turtles and pinafores, Possum grew up with hydraulic systems, Italian sports cars, and the smell of petrol. When she was seven, Possum asked Daddy Palmer to explain Mama's absence. She had a higher calling, said Palmer. After you were born, she left for India. That night, Possum wept for hours. Mama Ivy left me. I'm no good. Mama Ivy didn't love me. None of which was true, but... To fill the void, Possum studied karate, French cooking, classical music, aviation, Taoism, judo, persuasion, and racing cars. Possum believed to be loved meant she had to make the world a better place. But a belief like that comes at a high cost. So, once the coach stopped, she felt a hand on her shoulder and was brought back to the here and now. Come on, Possum, said her best friend and mechanic, Precious Wilson. We have a party tonight. Stepping off the coach, Possum glimpsed at Matthias Crane one more time. Darn, he was handsome. Melanie Daniels and Taylor McQueen brushed their teeth, showered, dressed, and readied themselves for the day ahead. However you think the perfect couple to be, Melanie and Taylor were it. As always, they were on a mission to explore local cultures and, if they found something keen, a snack, a labor-saving device, or what have you, bring it back to Florida, repackage it, and sell it to a novelty-starved country. Taylor and Melanie were always looking to get rich quick. Although she wouldn't say why, that side of Melanie and Taylor's worldview bugged Possum. For instance, last year alone, Taylor and Melanie tried to market an instant soup made from tiny freeze-dried Chinese turkeys. The soup called Pocket Gobblers did not sell. Next came a celery juice extractor and breath-freshening dog biscuits enhanced by chlorophyll. For Melanie and Taylor, every oddball idea was on the table. No scheme was too quixotic. Which raises the question, is it possible to amuse yourself to death? Once the closing ceremonies for the Grand Prix were over, there was a no expense spared party at Hotel Belvedere. Everyone was there, a young George Soros, Robert Mapplethorpe, tennis coach Renee Richards, and even the young multi-millionaire Matthias Crane with his leggy Slovenian gal pal, Nikolina Novak. Fashion designer Halston introduced Possum and Neely to the brash young millionaire. Shaking her hand, Matthias Crane said, if it isn't Possum Harding and world-renowned mentalist Neely Cairo, finally we meet. It's an honor, said Neely, sipping a drink. Possum gave Matthias the once-over and said nothing. She turned her attention to Nicolina, noting the girl was tall and beautiful in that unearthly Eastern European way. Still, gorgeous high cheekbones aside, there is something off-key to her charm. 
Possum introduced Matthias and Nicolina to her friends, and the small talk flowed naturally. A real hustler, 32-year-old, six-foot-tall Matthias Crane invited Possum and her friends to a presentation on the future at Club Ellsworth a few days later. The magnificent Club Ellsworth was Kitty Corner to Hotel Belvedere. Matthias said, I'm doing a presentation on the future. I thought you were here for the Grand Prix, said Possum. I was, said Matthias, but the demand to know about cryogenics has been overwhelming. Do you have freezing chambers here in Brando? asked the gorgeous gal. We prefer to call the technology Le Sarcophagus of Ice Possum, and yes, there are a few aboard my submarine, but no one wants to be frozen for 200 years. No kidding, thought Possum. Taylor McQueen and Melanie Daniels were at the helm of Seabiscuit, a mahogany pleasure boat from Italy, towing Possum and Buster Lee around Port de Brando on water skis. At the beach, lifting them, Precious Wilson and Neely were sunny, oh natural. I've never felt this free, said Precious. Trust the French to know the health benefits, said Neely. Eating cheese and baguettes while sipping Prosecco, the last person Neely would run into on a topless beach was magician Doug Henning. With his trademark shag hairdo and green jumpsuit, the two of the illusionists had appeared with Neely on a Flip Wilson TV special last year. Seeing Neely, Henson chirped, I'm going to the Matthias Crane presentation at Club Ellsworth. Are you? Neely didn't want to go, but knowing Henning would be there, she changed her mind. He was so well-connected. And then there were the infamous orchids of Club Ellsworth. Orchids. Mm-hmm. A child of nature, Neely was fond of orchids. Flower aficionados knew behind Club Ellsworth was a greenhouse, plush with the most exquisite orchids on the planet. Curious to see what the orchid hoopla was about, Precious rethought her plans too. The Possum Harding Adventures will be back after these important messages. I want you to meet my new business partner. He's a management genius. A whiz with figures. And he doesn't cost me much. Here he is. Not him. <laughs> Sparrow Univac's BC-7 computer. What I really like about BC is he speaks and understands English. So we don't need a professional programmer. Inventory, please. It only took us a few days to get to know each other. And now he gives me any fact I need in seconds. Inventory or payroll, order entry, anything. He doesn't need a big office or special air conditioning. He even has his own health plan. If BC doesn't feel good, I just call these guys. Sperry Univac. What a partner. <laughs> He's teaching me more about my business than I ever knew before. Hey, partner. How do you like your coffee? With or without? <laughs> Sperry. Making machines do more so man can do more. Marty, shh. You'll scare the fish. But we're missing the big football Relax. game. Relax. My VHS home video recorder is taping it right now. Terrific. Watch. Terrific. But suppose it's over three hours. Relax. Panasonic VHS tapes up to four hours of sports, movie specials on one cassette. Wow. This VHS is for me. You caught the whole game. Best catch of the day. Yeah. VHS, the four-hour system from Panasonic and other leading companies. 
Weary from skiing, Possum and Buster Lee rested in the back seat of Sea Biscuit. Melanie taxied the luxurious 30-foot boat back to her assigned berth. After docking, the unexpected happened. An enormous burst of power rocked the bay and trillions of gallons of seawater churned everywhere. Fearing the worst, Possum screamed, Ah! As the sea parted, enormous plates of gold and turquoise breached the surface, revealing a submersible craft of monstrous proportions. Chris and Proteus, the beastly leviathan, belonged to none other than Matthias Crane. As gutsy as grass, Buster Lee jackknifed off Seabiscuit's starboard side and paddled towards Proteus. Without warning, the hatch popped open, and three automatons in tang suits appeared. The youngest, with sleepy eyes and an expressionless face, in a collared shirt, funky bell-bottoms, and a hat reminiscent of Mount Kilimanjaro, Nicolina Novak appeared, followed closely by Crane. If it isn't Buster Lee, said Matthias. Do you own the submarine, quizzed the wily buck? Have you never been on one, said the millionaire. Holy buckets, no, quipped Buster Lee. Knowing the boy swallowed the bait, Matthias said, Meet me tomorrow at 7 a.m. We'll have breakfast and go for a dive. We have the equipment. We have everything you need. Back on land, Melanie, Taylor, and Possum stopped near the fishing boat rental outfit. A blue shark hung from a rope. Two well-fed foreigners posed by the lifeless fillet. A French boy photographed the scene and for a small fee would have a photo of the shark ready for pickup tomorrow. Leaning on a lamppost, Taylor took a deep breath and clenched and unclenched his left fist three times. He looked at the shark and turning to Melanie said, why we fight. When Neely Cairo was 16 and living in far Rockaway, Dwight Eisenhower was president. In June, she went to a party at a ranch in Millbrook. Near the stable, she saw a boy her age. He was five foot, two inches tall, stiffly relaxed in tight jeans, fry boots, and wearing a belt that pulled in his waist. Despite being whippet thin, he had a muscular neck, a long hawk-like nose, high cheekbones, a strong jaw, porcelain skin, black hair, and riveting blue eyes. He didn't need a Remington, that's for sure. In a whispery voice, he introduced himself as Herman. Herman, it had a shiny resonance, like the wind chimes at Morgan Creek. She said it again, Herman. Herman moved to the States with his father from Austria two weeks ago, and, by the looks of it, was a real country boy, all spec house and plywood. Herman had that smile boys use when they want something, but don't want to say it. Smitten and on autopilot, Neely slipped into the stable with him. Herman ripped open his shirt and clutched Neely with his powerful hand. For a few minutes, they threw caution to the wind. When they were done, Herman took Neely back to the party and vanished in the crowd of teenagers. One month later, at the doctor's office, her worst suspicions were confirmed. At 16, Neely was in a family way. As she sat on the unbearable secret, only Frank O'Hara's poem 
Meditations in an emergency kept her from going completely insane. One night, reading an article buried in Vogue, Neely learned that a lot of girls, when faced with the scandal, headed west. And so it was, off to Oregon, or Washington State, to a land of logging roads and dark forests, of fog and smoke, of church basements, communes, endless rain, mudslides, redneck towns, cycling clubs, marching bands, and community choirs. Nine months later, in a teepee on a cooperative in Oregon, a child was born. A boy so small, so pale, so helpless, that 17-year-old Neely wondered if her baby, christened Buster Lee, would live. But live he did. After Buster Lee's birth, Neely wrote his daddy, Herman, and pleaded that he leave Millwood and move to Oregon. But as Herman disappeared in the soft underbelly of the Canada-U.S. border, it was not to be. In her journal, Neely wrote, Love meant different things to girls than boys. Having nothing to add, she lay on her bed and sobbed. For the next eight years, with Buster Lee buried in her poncho, Neely wandered America adrift. In 1960, her currency of wonderless exhausted, Neely settled down in Jaipur Spice Commune. Inspired by the cargo cults of Vanuatu and Gauguin's studies of the noble savage, Neely began painting. She loved to paint sunflowers, kittens, mountains, puppies, lakes, crying clowns, and wide-eyed children. Occasionally, she sold a painting, but a lion's share of her income increasingly came from her work as a fortune teller, which proved to be useful. In 1967, during the Summer of Love, Jaipur Spice founder Elsa Rhineland ordered Neely to stop making that damn art because it was too individualistic. No longer allowed to paint, Neely had time to brood about everything, including her false face as a fortune teller. If the truth be known, Neely had not a psychic bone in her body, at least not yet. She viewed her fortune telling role as more of a compassionate ear or a shoulder to cry on. Not wanting to spook her clients, Neely spoke in elliptical vagaries and offered reassurances that things wouldn't get worse. Staring in a teacup, she would say, they have mailed the check, or your air conditioner works, or a woman with a gift will call you. When desperate, she would say, I see a romantic interest on the horizon, or if a customer needed sympathy, people take advantage of your generosity. At night, after tucking Buster Lee in, Neely strolled the bioluminescent beaches of Oregon with a thermos of mind-enhancing tea. On these walks, she would sip the tea and feel the universe calling her. But she couldn't understand the message. This is Quinty's Restaurant. 1503 Sherman Avenue, North Bend, Oregon. When Neely and Buster Lee were in North Bend, they went to Quinty's. The customer loved Neely's fortune-telling, and they loved Buster Lee because the little muffin was so adorable. Nevertheless, Quinty's restaurant was an unlikely place for a miracle to happen. But it was here that Neely's world would be upended and transformed forever. It started the day Neely lost her knapsack. After searching high and low for it everywhere, She'd staggered into Quinty's crestfallen. The waitress, with a kindness unknown today, 
heard about Neely's knapsack and gave the weeping girl a cup of coffee and a slice of pie. After Neely gathered herself, the waitress gave her a small deck of cards wrapped in a velvet bag. Take these, said the waitress. They used to belong to my sister, Ophelia. She was like you. She had the gift. Opening the bag, a beam of light flickered and faded. In the bag were a pack of cards, each with an illustration rooted in antiquity. The first card displayed a tower, the next card a wheel of fortune, then a wino, a skeleton, a hermit, a fool with a dog, a magician, a knight with a cup, a high priest, a devil, a widow, a skeleton, a chariot, a hanged man, a harlot, the moon, a star, the sun, the high priestess, among many others. Playing with her hair and looking at the cards, Neely said, What are these? Do you like quick rich schemes? Ponzi games, pyramids, casinos, labor-saving devices, and fishing rods small enough to fit in your pocket? Melanie Daniels and Taylor McQueen do. When traveling, they're always searching for that certain something, that nifty doohickey or deep-fried treat, an unusual bonbon or toy that could be the next pet rock, weebles, nerf ball, or pocket pudding. After two days at the Grand Prix, Taylor and Melanie noticed how delicious the local salad dressings were. Alas, no one would share their recipes with the outgoing couple. Determined to decode the secrets of French salad dressing, Melanie and Taylor began experimenting. Sitting on the balcony of the hotel overlooking the Mediterranean, Melanie and Taylor mixed various ingredients, sugar, red wine vinegar, olive oil, vegetable oil, onion powder, garlic powder, mayonnaise, MSG, paprika, high fructose corn syrup, salt, pepper, and oregano. A local grocer sold them a jar of sweet red sauce he swore was ketchup. In a bowl, Taylor whisked together the ingredients while Melanie kept track. To simulate salad, each batch of dressing was tested on a slice of tomato and a piece of lettuce. After four days at lot 183, the shadow of an angel's wing passed and a flicker of hope came over their eyes. Batch 183 was exquisite. Not too sweet, not too spicy, uh, just right. It was the mother load of salad dressings. The winning potion was sealed in a jam jar and stored in the room fridge. Nibbling on Taylor's ear, Melanie purred. Do you think Matthias Crane may be interested in our salad dressing initiative? We won't know unless we try, quipped Taylor, the amateur entrepreneur. Throwing on a sport coat, he left the room and ran to the docks. At the submarine, Taylor left a message for Matthias with one of his seedy henchmen. The Possum Harding Adventures will be back after these important messages. You ever notice the way nobody ever says anything in elevators? Face the front of the car, please. <laughs> you know why he says that? Habit. We're all creatures of habit. Food, for instance. What are we all going home to tonight? Spaghetti and meatballs, right? Potatoes, lots of starch. Face the front How of the How about a little variety once a week? Some light oriental dish, like, like chow mein. Delicious, filling, but not too heavy. Face the front. Face the issue. Would it hurt any one of us to try a little chow mein tonight? Break the American food habit. 
Probably some tasty canned chow mein you could pick up at your grocer's. Of course, it's up to you. <laughs> Don't let me influence you. I got no axe to grind. Phew. Takes all kinds, huh? From making your reservation to smiles at your destination, we're making each flight as right as it can be. Looking on that, Ozark is the going airline. Looking on that. This is High Karate's top secret lime orchard, where High Karate's cracked botanists have developed the only lime big enough and powerful enough to go into High Karate Oriental Lime after shave. High Karate Oriental Lime, with indispensable instructions on self-defense in every package. High Karate Oriental Lime. Be careful how you use it. Which costs more, canned dog food or Gaines burgers? The answer might surprise you. I use the can because I think it's cheaper. Really? A box of 12 regular Gaines burgers dog food has as many meaty, nutritious meals as six cans. Let's see which costs more. The Gaines burgers cheaper. Gaines burgers usually cost about 20 cents less than the leading national brands. What do you think now? Charlie can be eating Gaines burger now for dinner every night instead of special occasions. Gaines burgers, the canned dog food without the can. At 7 a.m., two of Matthias's henchmen escorted Buster Lee aboard Proteus. Ding Dong, friend of the unfortunate, remained behind on land. Descending the staircase to an opulent room, Buster Lee's eyes were as big as wet stones. Raised on a commune with nothing to read except Be Here Now, Buster Lee marveled at the collection of leather-bound books. He saw A Tale of Two Cities, Sense and Sensibility, Self-Reliance, Civil Disobedience, and 1984. There was a special section set aside for the postmodern thought leaders like Derrida and Foucault. Buster Lee, wearing a Miami's Dolphins crop top, jacaranda blue cutoffs, and flip-flops, stopped at the dining table and gaped at the place setting. He sat down and heard footsteps. Twirling down the hall like a couple of rock stars were Matthias and Nicolina. In the room they burst, with glittery hair smelling of eau sauvage, draped in jewelry, they wore matching flared pants and four-inch platform soles. Buster Lee stood up. No, no, said Matthias, waving his hand. Sit down. You are my guest. Not a moment later, one of the cadaverous manservants entered and whispered into Matthias Crane's ear. Something's come up, Matthias said. I shouldn't be more than a few minutes. Nicolina, can you entertain our young ward? Matthias disappeared. Obviously hungry, the whippet-thin Nicolina began feasting. She swiftly scarfed back two carrot cake muffins with icing, six rashers of bacon, five fried eggs, three glasses of orange juice, two servings of yogurt, and a bowl of granola. After wiping her lips with a monogrammed napkin, Nicolina held Buster's hand and said, I don't know why I'm so hungry, but pay attention. I warn you, Matthias cannot be trusted. You must stay away from him. As she let go, Buster Lee noticed Nicolina's hand was covered in small burn marks. Squinting, Buster Lee thought, what kind of monster would do this? In the distance, a gong sounded. 
and Buster Lee heard Matthias Crane coming down the hall again. Matthias stopped by the table. Picking up a piece of toast, he stuffed it in his mouth. Turning to Nicolina, he poked her ribs, saying, Don't you have unfinished business, my love? Nicolina nodded. Be off with you. She went away. Turning his attention to Buster Lee, Matthias smiled as though he was about to eat a newborn lamb. The eccentric millionaire wiped the breadcrumbs from his lips. Buster Lee stood up. Crane bit his lip and hovered his insect-like fingers a quarter of an inch away from Buster Lee's neck. Did he hurt you? said the macabre millionaire. I don't know what you mean, said Buster Lee. I think you do. But enough of this. Shall we go? Buster Lee nodded and walked out of the dining room down the hall. You've been listening to Possum Harding Adventures with Jupiter Gatson. If you like the pod, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Be sure to write a review and post on Apple Podcasts. Possum Harding Adventures musical theme written by Oliver Wickham. Incidental music by FMA.org, with special thanks to Kevin McLeod, Blue Dot Sessions, Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevere, and Jonathan Goldsmith. Pod Planet thanks Steve and Dana Gadsden, Adam Ive, Selena Fiorini, Dave Smith, Drew Froman, Monique Kelly, and Tattoo Sound and Music. Possum Harding Adventures is written and produced by PodPlanet.org Multiverse. See show notes and biographies at PodPlanet.org. Thank you for listening. You've just heard part one of Fresh or Frozen on Possum Harding Adventures. Be sure to hear part two next.